bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we are coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Before giving you a quick rundown on today's program, I'd like to uh, take a a minute here to thank a couple of our local business partners. Uh, Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Uh, You can now order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page, or just give Dr. Kim Holding a call at 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. All right, today's program... Before, before we get into talking about Major League Baseball, yeah, wait for that, uh, I want to tell you the rest of our lineup today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the myth that clean natural gas is somehow the right way to go as we transition out of fossil fuels. We're also going to talk about the recent vote at the uh, Amazon Distribution Center in Bessemer, Alabama. And we'll be talking about the dairy industry's commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. Kathy Burns will be joining us later in the program, too, as we talk about companion planting in our urban garden section. But I want to kick it off with talking about um, baseball. You know, as, as the baseball season starts, folks, no other matchup matters other than Donald Trump versus all of Major League Baseball. Okay, that's not true. Other things matter, but <laughs> this is fascinating to me. You know, Georgia's new voting law, it's, there's been this huge pushback, you know, and big corporations like Delta and Coke, they've been weighing in against it, of course, and that they themselves getting pushed back because of it. And now Major League Baseball is also involved. And um, what they did was, of course, pull their all-star game from Atlanta and, you know, a little more about that. But first, in, in researching this a little bit more, I uncovered some fascinating stuff. Okay. So activism, it's not been really common for the MLB in recent history. Uh, but it's not unknown. I mean, in the, in the, in the baseball universe uh, dating back to 1968, uh, after Martin Luther King was assassinated, the um, Pittsburgh Pirates unanimously agreed to sit out an exhibition game And then they set out the first two regular season games, and that led to other teams making a similar statement. Uh, And and then it resulted in a delay to the start of the season by a few days. Uh, And that, of course, was led in large part by Maury Wills and Willie Stargell and Alberto Clemente. Some of you might be old enough to remember those those great players. And, and, And a further note on the Pittsburgh Pirates. In 1971, they were the most diverse team in the major leagues. They had uh, 13 Latino and black players back then. Uh, they won the World Series that year, um, and, but they accidentally achieved another first in the history of Major League Baseball because on September 1st of 1971, the Pittsburgh Pirates fielded an all-black, they fielded an all-black and all-Latino lineup to start the game. Now, you'd have thought, of course, I, I, I'd assume when I heard that, that that had been planned, some kind of a statement. Um, and you would also think there would have been a bunch of pushback, right? But no. 
The, uh, the website of the Society for American Baseball Research, interesting place, by the way, That's, that website says, and I quote, Pirates manager Danny Murtaugh, who was white, uh, posted the lineup and may not have even realized himself that he had started the game with all black and Latino players. The players themselves did not realize it until the game was underway. Al Oliver, one of the players, stated that he had not noticed the lineup until an inning or two into the game when Dave Cash came up to him and said, Hey, Scoop, we've got all brothers out there. <laughs> End of quote. <laughs> so, again, the fascinating thing to me is there was no pushback. There wasn't even much publicity. Apparently, there was a, a, a strike, a newspaper strike in Pittsburgh at the time. Um, and, you know... It, perhaps also because it was an accident. I mean, this wasn't planned. This wasn't intended to be a statement. Uh, it was an, and it was an occurrence that was colorblind. There was no intent to make anything of it. But you think about that. 1947, that was the first year a black player, Jackie Robinson, was allowed to play baseball. And 24 years later, you've got a team fielding an all-black and Latino lineup. Anyway, fascinating aside... Uh, so, yeah, MLB has a, a a spotty, I mean, it's not a bad history, it's just spotty in terms of its activism on behalf of equality and, and against racial injustice. So I guess it wasn't a real surprise when on April 2nd, the uh, commissioner of baseball, uh, Rob Manfred, announced that they were going to pull the 2021 All-Star Game from Atlanta because of Georgia's new voting law that Manfred said would disproportionately suppress turnout among people of color. And that is pretty much the universal assessment of this law. Of course, the empire struck back, <laughs> uh, led by, led by uh, the empire's own Darth Vader, Mitch McConnell. He threatened, quote, serious consequences for corporations that retaliate against Republican-led efforts to pass new state election laws. I don't know what that. I don't know what that's going to look like. We haven't really seen it yet, but um, but don't you just love McConnell's hypocrisy? I mean, McConnell loves corporations. He loves their donations, and he loves freedom of speech, or so he says. And so, when corporations aren't towing the the McConnell line, but apparently that whole thing about love for corporations and love for freedom of speech, all that breaks down. Um, you know, so. Twitter shouldn't be allowed to cancel Trump's account and suppress his freedom of speech. But when it comes to the MLB's right to criticize a horrible anti-voting law, well, I guess they just better shut up and play ball. So, <laughs> uh, okay, it's not just Mitch McConnell piling on MLB. Um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he declined to throw out the first pitch at a Texas Rangers game. <laughs> oh, the agony. That must have really hurt. And, of course, um, the big poobah himself is weighing in. And in a recent speech, uh, Donald Trump called for boycotts of MLB, Coca-Cola, Delta, J.P. Morgan, CBS, Citigroup, Cisco, UPS, and Merck. And, again, just to keep the myth going, Trump reminded us that the 2020 election was stolen. Of course, he had to, had to throw that in. But, you know, I, I think about that. I... I might have to join that boycott, not, not for the same reason, but just because I think a lot of these corporations are not doing good things in the world overall. But I look at that list and I realize Coca-Cola, you know, I haven't drank Coke since I was a kid. Delta, I rarely fly. Once in a while, maybe it's Delta, I don't know. J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, uh, yeah, right. I have a lot to do with them. Cisco, no, sorry, I get my food local. UPS, no, sorry, I'm going to use USPS, a, a postal service. 
Um, so yeah, I'm, I guess I'm already doing. I'm already boycotting all those corporations except for MLB. Go Red Sox uh, and go Cubbies. Um, I, I do want to talk more about Georgia, but but let me just tell you a little bit about Iowa's voter suppression law. Um, we used to have a 40-day window for absentee uh, absentee ballot voting. Now it's 20. Uh, Iowans can no longer receive an absentee ballot automatically. They've got to actually request one. Um, in previous elections, you could uh, accept an absentee ballot that had been postmarked the day before the election. Now it's going to arrive on election day. That could be a mess. Ballot drop boxes? Nope. Under the new law, the county auditors can set up only one, even in a huge county like Polk. It used to be, too, that a friend or a neighbor could return your absentee ballot. Nope. Now it's got to be a household or family member, caregiver, or an election official. So the, um, what else? The, uh, the bill for early voting is shortened to 20 days. Polls will now close at 8 instead of 9. Uh, th- it goes on and on. This is Iowa nice, of course, right? <laughs> this is how we treat people who, uh, you know, who want to vote. We make it harder. We make it harder. Okay, but back to Georgia. Georgia probably um, made it worse. Uh, there's a New York Times story that sums it up pretty well. Quote, the Georgia law is part of an ongoing effort by the Republican Party to make voting more difficult, mostly because Republicans believe they win when turnout is low. End of quote. So the justification is to stop voter fraud, but voter fraud is pretty much non-existent. Uh, And yet when you have Donald Trump and Fox News and right-wing radio repeatedly claiming that voter fraud is a problem, then yeah, people hear it and they believe it. That happens with the truth. That happens with the lie. You hear a lie often enough, you believe it. Now, the new Georgia law is, I mean, it's blatantly obvious that this is a response to Republican losses in Georgia, the presidency and the U.S. Senate. And that, um, that law, of course, reduces hours for absentee voting. It increases ID requirements and, my favorite, it limits the distribution of water and food to voters waiting in line. I, I'm, I'm waiting to see the lawsuit on that one. That is insane. You know, and, and the bill specifically targets Democratic Atlanta, um, placing a limit on absentee ballot drop boxes and reducing the number of drop boxes from 94 for the entire Atlanta metro to only 25. But um, here's what puzzles me. Why, why, do, why do some Democrats feel they need to exaggerate the impact of these bills? They're bad enough. You don't need to exaggerate their impact. And they're clearly racially motivated. But some Democrats are overstepping it. And uh, I don't want to get into that in detail. That would be another conversation. But in response to that, here's what Tim Miller of The Bulwark had to say. And I quote, The entire existence of the legislation in question is premised on a pernicious lie. But for some reason... Biden and many other Democrats are grossly exaggerating the specifics of what it actually does. So what's the likely outcome of these laws in the next election? Well, no one really knows. Uh, you know, it could actually, it's hard to say how this is going to go. I suspect that they're going to have an impact because, you know, Republicans are brilliant strategists. They're brilliant and evil. Uh, they wouldn't be pushing these kinds of laws in Georgia or Iowa or anywhere else if they didn't have strong evidence, empirical evidence, strategically you know, gathered evidence that says these changes would benefit them. So yeah, these bills are bad, but keep it in perspective. Republicans have been thriving on voter suppression for decades. What's worse than these bills? Three things. The Electoral College, the filibuster in the U.S. Senate, and most important, gerrymandering. Those three things do much more damage to democracy in this country 
than these bills will do. Again, that said, they should be fought, and I commend MLB and these other corporations that I never use for also taking a stand. So I, I want to give you one example. Here's something to think about. I mean, this is not, it's not entirely clear where this goes. Here in Iowa, we have a small county, Fayette County. It used to be a swing county, back and forth. Uh, the Speaker of the Iowa House, when he was a, when it was Democratic, was from Fayette County. Um, but this past election, nearly 80% of the voters cast their ballots. Now, it is no longer a swing county. It is a solid Republican county. So that means in a solid Republican county that voted 80% of its, you know, of its registered voters, that was a lot of Republicans turning out. And uh, you have Biden. Biden collected more votes in that county than Hillary Clinton did, but he still lost that county by a bigger margin to Trump than Clinton had in 2016. And perhaps even more pointedly, if you look at Iowa's first congressional district, uh, Abby Finkenauer, the Democratic incumbent, she got 400 more votes in 2020 from that district than she did in 2018. And yet she lost by more than 10,000 votes. Let that sink in. Why did she lose by that huge margin, despite getting 400 more votes than, four, than two years earlier uh, in 2018? Because the winner, Ashley Hinson, got 1,800 more votes. So Democrats, you know, Major League Baseball, Delta, they're all rightfully concerned about the new wave of voter suppression laws and their right to try to do away with the filibuster, the Electoral College, partisan gerrymandering. But Democrats have a much bigger problem. They are losing voters to the Republicans and to the independents. The Democratic message is not working. It's not resonating. And that's another conversation for another day. Back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to the program, folks. Ed Fallon with you here as we broadcast from America's heartland, from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to the uh, nonprofit organizations that helped make this program possible. Thanks to Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. 
I would like to welcome to the program Frida Malik. She's the renewable energy advocate for CLAM, that's Clean Air Muscatine. Frida, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ed. Yeah, so um, CLAM focuses on air and also climate and a bunch of related issues. And what, what I'm interested in is, um, I mean, Muscatine is, uh, is unique. There are, there are other towns like this, but it's unique in that it's got a municipal utility. It's not under the umbrella of one of the large investor-owned utilities. And as a result, more decisions happen at the local level. And one decision by the municipal utility is to move away from coal into other sources. Can you tell us what's going on with that? Certainly. Um, so yeah, MPW, uh, Muscatine Power and Water, that's our local uh, utility. They currently have four coal plants operating um, and they are in the process of planning to decommission them. Um, these coal plants that they have have been in place for a while. The youngest one is 21 years old. The oldest coal plant unit that they have right now is 63. Wow, that, are, that's my yeah, that's, that's really old. That's my age. <laughs> <laughs> then the others are uh, 38 and 53 for anyone right. who's wondering. And so, um, so and they're so, no longer economical to run. Okay, and they're going to retrofit them to what type of energy source? Well, the three smaller units, they have confirmed they want to replace those with solar. Wow. Um, that's only, that's a very small amount of their overall power. That's about okay. 30 megawatts. So even though, it's three, even though it's three of the four, it's still a smaller percentage of the overall power generation. Yeah, the other one is over 100 megawatts, okay. uh, the coal unit. Um, all by itself. And they are looking to uh, replace that unit with a natural gas burning unit. Which I, I know the industry likes to promote natural gas as clean and green, but uh, those of us who are paying attention know that's not the case. Right. Yeah, there are um, there are a lot of uh, misconceptions with it. It certainly is cleaner than coal. Absolutely 100% cleaner. And we are really happy that we are making that change. Um, right now they are looking between a, uh, last numbers I was given was between 50 and 120 megawatts, uh, for this, for this gas plant. Um, it is, it is important to note that natural gas is itself a greenhouse gas with between 40 and 80 times more potent, a, a reaction in our atmosphere than just carbon dioxide alone. Right. That's the methane. I mean, methane mm -hmm. is, um, it... You know, again, I think the deception is that gas seems cleaner when it's burning, but then when it gets up into the atmosphere, it has an even more uh, immediate and devastating impact on global warming than carbon does. Yeah, and it's, it's not just, I mean, they like to look at the plant itself and they like to look at the after effects and they see the difference between that and coal. But we also have to look upstream and we have to, we can't just, it doesn't come out of thin air, you know, it has to come from somewhere. And where is right. it coming from? It's How are we getting it? It's probably fracked. Yep. Yeah. Most yeah. likely that's, it's, that's how we are procuring it. That's how we're extracting it. Mm. Um, and that's uh, up until this point, that has been a very cheap way of getting this fuel um, because of the, uh, the, the kind of, oh, like they're kind of, they were kind of like handouts from the last administration. There was a lot of, uh, rescinded rules um they didn't ha they don't have to disclose the fracking liquid 
There were rescinded rules about the improval of well construction and management of wastewater. They opened up the public lands like the Tongass and the uh, Alaska Na National Wildlife Refuge, mm. reversed wilderness protections, and all of those things added up to being able to extract and transport for very, very cheap. Right. Yeah, and as a result, um, yeah, you're, that's that's been the push is to replace oil and gas, oil and coal with uh, with natural gas. But again, I, I think uh, the science is pretty clear. It's not a good idea. But the um, now, my understanding is uh, there's a lot of uh, support locally for all four of those coal-fired power plants to be shifted to renewable production. But the state legislature, um, I, I always love it that when the Republicans talk about local control, they're big fans of letting local communities decide their own fate. But when they decide something that goes against the interest of their corporate sponsors, suddenly they sing a different tune. And that's happening in this case as well. Yeah, it is. Unfortunately, um, there is some legislation that just passed uh, in Iowa law, the Senate file 455 and House file 555, um, that prohibits counties and cities from regulating the sale of natural gas or propane. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And, and it's, uh, there, I, you can go online, you know, Iowa, uh, I legis.iowa.gov and you can watch the, the Senate hearing on it. And that's what I did. And there was an amendment brought forward in the middle of that debate by Senator Kornbach to, to add to that bill, the verbiage that it would not impede renewable energy plans that different cities and counties might want to adopt as the new administration supports these kinds of steps. And it was voted down. Yes. So that means that the uh, our leaders specifically wanted this bill to interfere with that kind of or those kinds of ordinances and those kinds of resolutions. Wow. And that says volumes. Uh, again, this is not about this is not about uh, defending local control or even defending best economic practices. It's about defending an industry that um, that face it, um, some politicians rely heavily on for donations. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and the bill, has the bill been signed by the governor? Uh, last I heard it was on her desk. Then it will have been signed by the governor. <laughs> That's really unfortunate. <laughs> so, it, so, in so, the process, if not already, yeah. So right now, it's really up to, if the municipal utility itself decides not to go ahead with the natural gas conversion, if it decides mm -hmm. to use solar or something else, then it can still do that. Yes, it can. There's just no, there's no, no power, no powers left with the local governing authorities, thanks to the uh, legislature. Okay, you know, you would think that they'd be figuring this out. I mean, climate change is advancing so fast, and the impacts so dramatic that you'd think they'd be figuring this out. That we have to make the shift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like to, I like to make the the point that I, we really, really do appreciate our local utility, uh, MPW. We thank them as much as we can, as publicly as we can, that they are investing as if climate change is real. They have a Choose Green program where any customer, uh, whether it's commercial, residential, or industrial, can can have all 100% of their energy green. Um, they've got solar, they've got some wind, it's not much, but they have some, and we love that. They are investing as if climate change is real, but they are not investing as if climate change is happening, and that is where we butt heads. That's a really important distinction. Uh, you know, understanding that climate change is real is one thing, understanding that it's happening is another thing. And it's hard, 
it's hard not to see that it's happening with 2020 being the warmest year on record. I mean, tied with 2016 mm-hmm. with the hurricane mm-hmm. season in the Atlantic breaking records, the wildfire season out west breaking records. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, the news, the news this past week about the Thwaites Glacier, the size of mm-hmm. Florida in, uh, in, in, Atl- in, in, the, in the Antarctic, uh, melting a lot faster than scientists originally thought it would be. And that right. the sea level rise from that is going to be huge. Well, mm-hmm. so it's happening. And I, I mean, so is there hope that, uh, that, that people might be able to talk with the municipal utility and convince them to uh, take a different direction than natural gas? We're still in the process of, you know, there's still dialogue. There's still time. We'd love for them to kind of hold back the final decision and postpone their ultimate decision. Um, we like to, the way we see it, even if they, they build it as fast as possible and it's built, you know, in probably one year or two years, it's going to take some time, even if they start today. Um, uh, in, in two years, three years, 10 years, we don't know exactly how much money it's going to cost to fuel that plant. We can, we can guesstimate the cost of, uh, you know, the materials to build it and the people, you know, we got to pay the workers. We can kind of under, uh, we can kind of estimate those numbers, but the cost of the fuel is going to be very uh, unpredictable. And and in fact, the only thing we can predict about it is that it's going to be more expensive tomorrow than it is today. But if they move instead towards a renewable energy source, we know exactly how much that fuel source is going to be. We're still going to have to pay for the material to build it, and we're still going to have to staff it. But if we have a solar garden that we are running, the fuel for that is free. And if they have a wind farm, still got to pay for staff, still going to pay for the material to build it. But the fuel to run it is free, right. and it's going to be free forever. Right. You know, one other angle that might interest the municipal utility uh, leadership is that just upstream from you in Alamakee and um, Clayton and uh, Clayton County, you've got frac sand mining going on. And that, that, sand, that, that sand is being mined specifically to help produce natural gas. Uh, and that the destruction of the natural environment up there in the uh, Driftless area in Northeast Iowa um, has bipartisan opposition. People on the ground there do not like it. In fact, they have voted strongly um, to put severe restrictions on frac sand mining. Maybe mm-hmm. that message from your neighbors just north might get through. <laughs> so. Yeah. Freedom, well, I got, I've, I... got, I've got to run to a break. Um, thank you so much mm-hmm. for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me so much. I appreciate it. Folks, we've been talking with Freedom Malik. She's the renewable energy advocate for CLAM. That's Clean Air Muscatine. When we come back from a short break, we're going to be joined by Charlie Wishman. He's the president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. We're going to be taking a look at Amazon's distribution center in Bessemer, Alabama, and the uh, vote to unionize that just got decided uh, this past week. Um, Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. 
Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas-Finley. You can also enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates, too. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Back to the Fallon Forum again. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We're broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the heart of America's heartland. Thanks to our nonprofit and business partners, including Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Clipsham offers planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. All right, welcome back to the program again. With me now, Charlie Wishman. Charlie Wishman is the uh, president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Ed. Really appreciate you uh, inviting me on. And uh, you know, we've been we've been talking about having this conversation for a while as we wait to see waited to see what the results from the union vote in in uh, Bessemer, Alabama, would be. And uh, I think a lot of people are disappointed to see that the uh, the push to unionize did not pass. Yeah, I think a lot of people are disappointed. Um, and, and I think that there's a huge disconnect. You know, so AFL-CIO, uh, our, our national organization, put out some polling uh, last week um, that said, you know, 77%, which I think is a darn good number, of uh, percent of the public uh, supported unionization efforts in Bessemer, Alabama, around Amazon. Um, and it's even really strange, and I, I you know, I, it, it may have been for perhaps the wrong reasons, but you had even people like Marco Rubio, exactly, come out in in, in favor of unionization. Um, yeah, how, do you, but, uh, how do you explain, how do you explain that? It's a very hard thing to do. How do you explain that one? How do you explain Rubio coming out in support of uh, something uh, that labor unions would appreciate? Well, I think sometimes you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, right? Uh -huh. and, uh, yes. I think that that has more to do with uh, an axe to grind, perhaps, that he has um, with Mr. Bezos and, uh -huh. uh, on behalf it. of uh, maybe the former president. I'm not sure. Right. Um, but again, you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, and uh, I think Marco so, Rubio uh, falls under that category. So, you know, Amazon argued that, well, you know, we pay 50, we pay 15 bucks an hour. That's a starting wage. That's pretty good. Um so, I mean, and I know that they had a lot of pressure on their workers to hear their side of the story and to be concerned about whether they'd be able to find a better job somewhere if they didn't hang on to their $15 an hour job at Amazon. And to, to what extent did, did that argument impact the, uh, the, the, re, the voting result? You know, uh, it's really hard to tell what exactly um, that particular argument uh, how that uh, impacted the result, because what we saw from Amazon was classic uh, anti-union playbook about how to run an, uh, an anti-union election. Um, Amazon did everything out of the playbook and then some. So, you know, uh, um, they... I mean, look, when, when you have mandatory sessions where, where 
workers are being forced by management uh, to, to hear why they shouldn't unionize. And, and we know that the managers are lying in those meetings and that, uh, you know, the ones at Bessemer were, were, were no exception. You know, uh, when the company is texting people several times a day, urging them to vote no, uh, when they papered the the facility's bathroom stalls and anti you know with with anti union flyers, and, and they even went as far as they they outfitted temp workers, who are who were ineligible for the union, but they're especially vulnerable to to management uh, pressures, to vote uh, with all kinds of vote no swag, um, you know they they were. They were ensuring that people were walking as, you know, serving as walking billboards. So, uh, so they were kind of, they were kind of rigging the election, up. isn't that safe to say? They're rigging the election. Well, I I think that um, the, the the problem that is that they are actually playing by the the rules of the game, and I guess that that is a segue to talk about exactly two things. First of all, is um, Number one, why we need something called the the Pro Act, the Protect the Right to Organize Act, mm. uh, which has passed the House actually with five uh, five Republicans voted for it in in the House, uh, uh, and and what it does is it would actually put fines on uh, companies who are engaging in all of these different things, uh, even uh, you know paying, gosh, they were even paying people a thousand dollars to any employee who would quit. Uh, so that they wouldn't be entitled to vote in the election, and I could go on and on and on with all wow. the things. Wow, that, that's a, that's an amazing but, list of uh, transgressions. Geez. Well, yeah, absolutely, and, and, and the Pro Act would actually put financial penalties on companies that do these, because the truth of the matter is is that uh, right now the the election process is is broken. Mm. Um, but I think here in Iowa. Um, there, there is an Amazon organizing effort going forward, but it's not relying on the election process to raise standards for workers. What's it relying on? Sure. So what's really cool about this, so, I'm, uh, so this is uh, spearheaded by uh, Teamsters Local 238, and their, their principal officer is Jesse Case. And I got to say, you know, I, I especially uh, appreciate Teamsters 238 and Jesse because they, they look at things in a very, very different way about how, you know, at, at the bottom line, uh, what unions are supposed to be do, doing is building power for workers. And you can do that in, in many other different ways. So, uh, uh, for example, um, the Teamsters uh, here, they're not working on a warehouse, they're working on drivers. And, you know, through through surveys and actually talking to to uh, potential um, people who would want to join, you know, they're finding out that what what these workers actually want uh, is not just fair wages and, and benefits, but they want safer jobs, but affordable housing, you know, a, a real safety net sure. for their working families. Right. Because they're not actually. Uh, making, you know, you mentioned fifteen dollars an hour. That's still not a livable wage in my book. Yeah, that's thirty-one thousand um, a year, and that's uh, less than half of the U.S. median family income. You know, and that's uh, you can still qualify for subsidized school lunches at fifteen bucks an hour full time. Right, and and so what I think that uh, by organizing a group of workers together, not necessarily to to basically again to to gain power for those workers. You could do that, but not through an election process. So if you, you, you get people together, you can still take actions um, like labor stoppages or enlist members of the community and allies 
um, and and rally and things like that. Um, and, and the cool thing about this, what I really, really love, Ed, is that this is a campaign that any any of your listeners can get involved in. Um, all you have to do, and this is especially in the Des Moines and, and Iowa City area, uh, but, the, you know, these delivery service providers or, you know, the actual Amazon trucks, they are uh, 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 they're, they're going to people's doors. Um, and if you order, if you use Amazon, you can go to workersessential.org. And under the community tab, there's a flyer that you can print out. And you can stick it on your door. And it says, and I encourage your, your listeners to do this. Go, go to this website, check it out. Um, and um, it's got a QR code on it. And you just stick this flyer on your door. And if you want union printed ones, we've got them here at the, the State Federation. People can get a hold of me and, and do that. But if you just want to print it off on your printer at home, okay. the easiest way to do that, you can do that. And it's got a QR code. So the driver can come up, they deliver your package, and they say, you know, this flyer says, Amazon workers, this house supports you. Okay. And then they, they, they take a picture of that, that QR code, and it gets, gives them more information about um, what the Teamsters are doing to help, again, build power for, for right. workers. And, that, and that's relevant not just to Iowa, but to any place in the U.S. where there's an Amazon uh, workforce, and that means pretty much anywhere in the U.S., right? Yeah. You know, um, and, and, and that's the thing is, is, you know, Amazon is such a, 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 an enormous company um, that, you know, the, you know the, it would be nice to be able to just Amazon, to organize Amazon all across the board, you know, um, but the, but the way that these are set up, and especially these delivery service providers, is is they're often uh, 10.99 employees. Right? Uh, you can't right. even figure out who the actual employer is, right? And that that's another reason why it's hard to go through the election process. Right. And so not only are they cheating on unemployment and uh, paying unemployment taxes and paying um, um, uh, workers' compensation and things like that, like a, a business like yours or or um, whoever would um you know uh they're not playing by the rules of the game but we have to figure out a different way to talk to these workers and i and i commend uh teamsters 238 for coming up with this idea about how to talk to them well that's uh that's interesting stuff charlie it's a good uh, a good way to us you know to find a silver lining in that vote in uh, bessemer alabama um you know i commend you for uh, continuing to push and i hope people will take advantage of that opportunity uh again check it out what's the website again charlie yeah, absolutely. Just go to workersessential.org, and um, you can check out the entire campaign, just okay. looking at it there and read about it. But as far as the flyer, if you go to the community tab, and under that you'll see the flyer, just print it okay. out. And if you're if you're an Amazon user, stick it on your door. And even if you're not, order like a dollar toothbrush or something like that. <laughs> and then uh, you know, uh, and they could, you know, somebody still has to deliver it, and then right. somebody can come to your door, and, and hopefully, you know, the drivers will take notice and, and scan and, and go to that website and and get you know get some more information, yeah. and, and the union can talk to them. Charlie, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ed. And, and again, there's always more way to build power for workers, and, and we'll do it in any right. way we can. Folks, we've been talking with Charlie Wishman. He's the president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. When we come back from a short break, uh, Dr. Jamie Jonker is going to join us. He's the vice president of sustainability and scientific affairs with the National Milk Producers Federation. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. 
Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Happy spring, folks, and welcome back to the Fallon Forum. I hope you're enjoying spring as well as we are here in central Iowa. Uh, Kathy and I, we've got about half our crops already planted. Uh, knock on wood. Hopefully the uh, the big frost and freeze and snowstorm won't come. Uh, yeah, thanks for all the uh, all the folks who helped make this program possible, including our local business partners, including Noche Jazz and Cabaret, where they feature both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas-Findley. Noche also has a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. I would like to welcome to the program now Dr. Jamie Jonker. He's the Vice President of Sustainability and Scientific Affairs with the National Milk Producers Federation. Uh, Jamie, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, Ed. I appreciate you uh, having me on. So it has come to my attention that the uh, National Dairy Federation uh, is planning to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. That's impressive. It is, and actually it's, it's, the, it's the whole U.S. dairy industry, Ed. Uh, we made the announcement last year um, through our Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy that uh, not only do we want to be carbon neutral or better by 2050, but we also have other goals of optimizing water usage and improving water quality. Uh, and these are things that we're doing throughout the entire dairy value chain from the farm through the processor to getting it to the consumer. And how is, uh, what, what are the details on that? How do you move from, because I know that dairy production is a fairly heavy water user. Um, and I know, of course, water is tied in with a lot of uh, different uh, climate goals, but what's the uh, specific, without getting into crazy level of detail, what are some of the specific things and changes you want to see happen? Well, you know what we've got to do? We've, we've got a roadmap for getting there, Ed, uh, uh, but we need to put some things out in the field and see how they work on the farm. And so in addition to our goals announced last year, we announced the Net Zero Initiative, and that's our roadmap to first demonstrate that that we can and will get there uh, with new technologies and best practices. And then we're going to accelerate the adoption of technologies and practices on dairy farms. And we're going to have a suite of things that dairy farmers can choose of for what's best on their own individual farm. Okay. And are there any benchmarks and any particular dates and times that we should be looking at for specific uh, adoptions? Um, so we are going to be reporting out uh, progress every five years. So our first report will be out in 2025. Um, we haven't defined those intermediary benchmarks yet, 
but some of the work that we're doing now on modeling is going to be able to help us look at what, what those benchmarks can be in the future. Now, I imagine you might see some of the same kind of criticism that presidential candidates uh, who were here in Iowa two years ago saw uh, when, when a candidate would say, yes, we're going to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. A lot of the pushback was 2050 is not quick enough based on what science is telling us. Uh, that should be that goal should be a lot sooner. How do you respond to that concern? You know, I think Ed is we've got to remember this is a journey, and dairy producers have becoming have been becoming more efficient for decades. Uh, we made a uh, goal uh, back in 2009 uh, with USDA, a stretch goal where we wanted to reduce greenhouse gas intensity 25 percent by 2020. Uh, and some preliminary analysis uh, that was done in 2017 on this. Uh, showed that we already had a 19% smaller carbon footprint, uh, 21% less land use, 30% less water use. And so we we made a demonstration uh, um, in the last decade, and I think that shows that we are not only committed to what we're trying to do by 2050, but we've got a track record that demonstrates we're going to be able to get there. All right. And to, to what extent, extent does organic milk production fit into the uh, big picture? So uh, organic and conventional milk both have a role to play in consumer choice and in, the, and in getting to uh, carbon neutrality. Um, there's carbon uh, neutrality operations uh, or options available for every dairy farm, conventional, organic, Amish to multi-thousand uh, uh, cow dairies. Uh, and so every dairy farmer is going to be part of this journey, and they're going to work with what's best for their farm and their farm business. Is there any tension between the organic uh, component of uh, the dairy industry and the conventional industry? You know, I think sometimes you can see that there's there's uh, marketing differences. But I think at the end of the day, um, everybody's in this journey of getting to carbon neutrality. And I think we're going to see uh, both organic and conventional continue to make make gains in reducing our carbon footprint. Okay. Well, that's encouraging. Um, I, I, now, I, I would hope that there are other branches of agriculture that are engaged in the same conversation that are willing to make the same kind of commitment. I don't know whether that's the case or not. I certainly know that's, the, that's an underlying strategy in, among organic farmers. Uh, and by the way, my, my partner Kathy and I, we do farm organically in Des Moines on a very small scale. With our, our focus is on how do we take our model and teach people how to turn their yards into dinner. So it's not, it's not in any way, shape, or form a commercial operation. It's more of an educational operation. But again, um, with, our, with an organic approach, we have a very, very low carbon footprint already. And so I'm just wondering, um, you know, to what extent do we see that same kind of commitment happening elsewhere in the agricultural universe? Or maybe that's beyond your scope. Well, it, it might be a little beyond my scope, Ed, but maybe I can talk about what, what are others in the global dairy sector doing. And we've seen commitments by um, dairy companies in, in Europe, dairy companies uh, in, in Oceania, New Zealand, Australia, that are going down the same road of, of carbon neutrality and, and looking to uh, optimize water use on their dairy farms. And so I think you can look at um, agriculture, instead of being a blame for for climate change, we're actually going to be part of the solution to well, addressing because, climate change. And that's change. a really good point because a lot of folks who are working on climate do blame agriculture. And, you know, I, I think we do need to understand agricultural production does emit greenhouse gases. 
Uh, but there are things that we can do to um, minimize those and things where we can even make agriculture become a carbon sink. And everybody still has to eat at the end of the day. And so it's important to remember that we need to produce food for a growing population in a manner that becomes more sustainable with regards to climate change. And ideally, people would not eat, not eat just at the end of the day, but at the beginning of the day as well and in the middle. Uh. You know, three servings of dairy a day, a glass of <laughs> every meal, maybe go. a little ice cream for dessert. Well, you're talking to the right crowd here. Kathy actually makes uh, our own ice cream. We, we, she makes butter as well. So we, um, we love our fresh dairy products. But uh, let me ask you this. Uh, speaking of fresh dairy products, I know uh, there's a conflict right now over the use of the word milk. And I don't want to get into that. We've talked about that on this program before. But I'm wondering, do you happen to know to what extent is the almond industry? And again, there are various milk products, but almond is probably one of the most prominent uh, uh products that use the term milk, and it's becoming, you know, much more popular, and there's a fairly aggressive campaign to discredit cow-based milk uh, and to promote almond milk and other types of plant-based, quote, milks. But to what extent are they also trying to minimize their carbon, their carbon footprint and also to optimize their water uses? Because almond, almond production uses a huge amount of water. So I'm just... Yeah, almond production certainly is very uh, water intensive. Um, you know, I'm sure that they're working on their own sustainability journey. I'm, I'm just not that familiar with it, to be honest, Ed. You know, but what I can say is that that true dairy milk just is such a nutritional package um, that it's it's something that is is recognized uh, 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 by USDA important uh, for uh, U.S. Um, uh, citizens to to uh, consume. And there's a, there's a role and a place for alternative beverages uh, in the marketplace, and, uh, and that's fine. Uh, it's just important that people understand the whole package that dairy brings to the table. Yes, literally and figuratively, yeah. Well, uh, Jamie, I really want to thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, folks, have been talking to Dr. Jamie Jonker. He's the Vice President of Sustainability and Scientific Affairs with the National Milk Producers Federation. Uh, Jamie, thanks so much. Thank you for having me on, Ed. Folks, when we come back from a short break, we're going to have our urban garden segment of this program. Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us. We're going to talk about companion planting. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Before we talk with Kathy Burns here, I want to take a second to thank one of our local business partners, our anchor sponsor. In fact, that's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, Gateway is Des Moines' locally owned and centrally located specialty food and grocery store. Uh, you can now order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Kathy Burns is with us, folks. Um, we're doing our regular uh, urban gardening segment this month, or this week rather, on companion planting. How do you plant things together that will get along with each other and not fight? I thought it was about how to plant things with your companion, which is what we do. <laughs> There's that too, <laughs> yes. It's not about uh, companion animals or you can't take your no. companion broccoli in, into the bank your, with you. Yeah, it can't be your service broccoli. Okay, okay. All, all right. right. We've, we've clarified uh, we've, what we've we gone, need. We've gone beyond silly. Time, let's, time, let's get serious here. Well, the concept of companion planting is not new. Uh, it, it involves planting things in proximity to each other so that there is benefit to one or both plants. And frankly, I was trying to do more research on this because we've never done a lot of this. I've done some in the past. We do, we do some of it, but we've never really delved in. So I was looking things up. It's hard to find real research, although unlike planting potatoes on Good Friday, there is some actual research <laughs> that is involved um, in companion planting. But a lot of the evidence uh, for this is anecdotal and experiential. People just kind of get to know what works for them. Yeah, and I imagine that if something might work for one person or in one location, it might not work uh, elsewhere. Right. We're in Zone yeah. 5, and we are here in Iowa. Um, we can't do some of the same companion plant. Like, I don't know what you'd plant with a lemon tree to make it grow. The plant, uh, <laughs> the plant combination I hear most uh, frequently, and it's pretty generic, and is uh, marigolds. Marigolds mm -hmm. work to keep insects out of all sorts of places. It can. There are really three reasons to companion plant. Sometimes uh, it has nothing to do with insects. It's plants tend to grow well together, or one plant benefits the other. It could be through some nutrient fixing, such as nitrogen. It could be through um, a, a structure for one vining plant to grow on another, and it could be through shade or ground cover or mulch kind of a thing that, that adds, or a number of things. Um, another goal of companion planting is to attract beneficial insects, hmm. which really means you want those insects to kill the insects that you consider pests, and that's right. the third reason <laughs> to companion plant, is to deter or get rid of the pesky insects. So I see more companion planting in our immediate future, do I not? You betcha. And I have, <laughs> I have started some flower seeds this year in hopes to do some of that. Marigolds, one, and giant zinnias. Where are the marigolds going to go? Um, I, I think near the, well, I've got it written down here. We're not to that part of my notes yet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Jumping the gun there. Well, there I go. No, Again. I, I, I am a little more new to this. Well, I want to talk about the kind of companion planting that we have already oh, okay. done, which is sort of a three sisters. A lot of people know about that. Gotcha. But we often only do two of the sisters. because Long history there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, indigenous cultures right. to credit for that. Um, beans corn and squash mm -hmm. together. And because we don't do a pole bean, 
we usually just do two of the sisters. Um, well, I've done that before. This is, this is the one companion planting thing I have some experience with. And, uh, you know, I've always found that when you do corn, beans, and squash, two of them usually work out, sometimes just one, but I've never had all three work out, and it's not always the same ones either. But mm. idea being the corn grows tall, get the head start, the beans grow up the corn, mm-hmm. the squash covers the ground, keeps the weeds out. It's great theory, and it works pretty it well, great. but I've, always, I've only been able to get two to come through for me. I, I have done three, but not successfully every mm, year. Right. And another benefit to the beans in with the corn, corn is a heavy feeder mm, right, off, right. The, off of the uh, soil, and the beans help to regenerate yeah, good point. The, mm-hmm. the nutrient that the, the tomatoes can take out. I used to do a lot of basil with tomato, and that's very common. Um, they just seem to grow well together. And I did see that uh, other... Plants that do well with tomatoes. There's a lot of websites about what what helps tomatoes grow and taste better. Carrots, lettuce, peas, onions, parsley, and garlic. And we <laughs> couldn't really do the garlic part because our garlic cycle is very different from our tomato cycle. Yeah, and we have a pretty specific garden rotation, a garlic rotation that works really well. We plant garlic anymore, I'd say, early November. Uh, mm-hmm. Climate change has kind of moved back the, the starting, the, the planting date for that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when you harvest that in late July, you got maybe two weeks to amend the soil, and then the turnips go in. <laughs> Always oh, for we, us. Oh, we just turnips. love the turnips. <laughs> the turnips are so beautiful. And when they come out in October, you've got a great tr- crop of turnips. You re- replenish the soil a bit, add some more amendments, nutrients, and then, boom, garlic goes in again. Mm. And that's not exactly companion, that's successive, succession yes. planting, but it works really well. It does. But, uh, it's about sharing. Yeah, sharing. <laughs> sharing the space. Right. <laughs> um, the, uh, the benefit of attracting insects that, frankly, can help you kill the unbeneficial insects. Um, we are going to try this year planting some um, zinnias, Mm. And I've, I got up some fennel seed, too, because I see that that is good to plant near the cabbage. Kind of strong-smelling plants tend to have bugs. some beneficial impact, it sounds like. Well, in this one, um, they can attract the uh, parasitic wasps. Oh, the ones that you find on your hornworms on your tomato plants. People, that, that often freaks them out. They see the hornworm. It's this big, long green worm that's eating your tomato mm-hmm. foliage, and that freaks people out. Mm-hmm. And then when they see all the little white you know, white white pigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, you know, that that's um that freaks them out even more. But that's actually a really good thing. Mm-hmm. And you say that you can attract attract those wasps with, with zinnias, zinnias, really? and fennel and dill. And it says anything with sort of an umbrella shaped uh, cone of flowers. And so, yeah. um, Queen Anne's lace. I don't think you really we want, don't want that to plant started that. No. in your garden. <laughs> There's enough of that um, in the wild. But it's supposed to be good at, with cabbage moths okay. and cabbage lopers as well. Really? And so we chase that, moths around the garden with a butterfly. It's very embarrassing. <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'll post a video of Kathy running around the yard with a butterfly net. Somewhere. We've been running around with a butterfly net and swooping it around and sometimes somebody walks past on the sidewalk and we have to explain we're not trying to catch them or their dog. And we did not escape from some <laughs> some place we should have been locked up in. <laughs> well, the other part of um, attract or planting plants that's that have a quality that just deter other pests. That would be some. Uh, what we're going to try is the basil in with mm. the artichokes. We've had a heck of a an aphid 
problem with the artichokes this year. And we have some other plants that might get some aphids uh, on them. And so the basil is supposed to have a nice, you know, it's kind of spicy scented. And so that's supposed to be a good one. Also, um, for squash bugs, it says to plant mint, chives, garlic, onion, tansy, radishes, nasturtium, marigolds, and bee balm among mm. other vines, and also help with mm. the squash bugs, which and, we have a problem with. Of course, some of those things can take off and become their own kingdom, like mint or chives. But it sounds like the best thing to do is to scatter them about. Just put mm. them where you need them and contain them so they don't take over. People are yeah. using mint as a companion plant uh, in pots, and mm. then they can they can put it wherever they need it and bring it in and winter it over. It won't be spreading and taking everything over, mm. and then um, do that again next year. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a bunch of experiments. Anything else we want to jump on before we? Well, I want to note that up? the articles that I referenced were from the Spruce, and I do find a lot of helpful information on a website called thespruce.com. And I also used Oregon State University hmm. um, information, and they seem to have some good research-based information. And I'm sort of a believer in science. And I know not everybody is, but I do that kind of thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of good extension services associated with some of the uh, state universities, including mm -hmm. here in Iowa. Mm -hmm. But uh, I found the uh, University of New Mexico to be very helpful as well. Even though that's oh. a totally different climate zone than we have here. They still have really good information. I'll so. take a peek. Thank you for joining us, Kathy. Uh, thanks to all of our guests today, uh, Freedom Malik, uh, Charlie Wishman, uh, Jamie Jonker, and Kathy Burns. Uh, thanks to our local business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Noche Jazz and Cabaret, and Ritual Cafe. And also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks also to the Des Moines Band Brother Trucker for providing us our bumper music, a tune composed by Andy Fleming called Downtown. And thanks to our production team of Sherry, Herdina, and Kathy Burns. And if you value the alternative voices that we like to focus on this, this, progr this uh, program, please subscribe to the Fallon Forum on Stitcher, iTunes, or your podcast preference. This is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking you for joining us today on the Fallon Forum.